Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Twenty years ago, you wouldn't have gone into Blockbuster and rented nine movies and not felt like a loser. Like, even the cashier would have been like, is everything all right, man? I talk to a lot of people who come up to me and they ask, how do I become an author? How do I become a speaker? How do I build a career where I'm writing and speaking and living an extraordinary life and playing with only the people I want to play with and talking and writing about the things that really light me up? And... I always think it's kind of funny that that comes to me because I don't consider myself that person yet. I'm very much on the journey. But one person who I do think has really done a great job of building this for himself is today's guest, John A. Cuff. John is a friend of mine, and you may know him because he's a New York Times bestselling author of a number of books, I believe five of them, the latest called Do Over. And he transitioned from a pretty mainstream job and now basically writes and speaks, travels the world, writing and speaking for a living, talking on stages 
of all sizes from, you know, like dozens of people to tens of thousands of people. And we really dive into his journey in today's conversation and what it's actually like to build that type of career, what his focus on the craft is, what part of it lights him up, what he struggles with, and where he's going with all of it. It's a really fun, wide-ranging conversation. John is also a massive student of humor and comedy. And we really dive into his exploration of that and how he elevates that to one of the most important things he tries to do in his creative process and in his writing and in his speaking. Really excited to share John Acuff with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. So we're hanging out at GLP HQ, also known as My Living Room Studio, mm-hmm. in uh, New York City. We met, I guess, like a month ago. Yeah, it has um, been long. In Portland, uh, Oregon, hanging out at a different event. Just started jamming, and immediately I was like, this is a conversation we need to continue. So it's fun to be hanging out with you here, even though I'm wearing bare feet, ripped up jeans, and dude, you're dressed to the nines. I know. I had a speaking engagement this morning. I, I spoke over at Comedy Central, and it makes me nervous because like, I'm hilarious when I'm talking to like a convention of plumbers. Like I destroy <laughs> at plumber conventions. But Comedy Central, they're all professionally funny. So I felt like I really have to have a button-down shirt on for this one. T- if I could wear the same t-shirt and pair of jeans every day, I would. Like I would, a black t-shirt, that's it. I'm not good at fashion. Um, they hired a stylist once to help me, t- like, to teach me how to dress. And she's like, you don't even wear the right sizes. Like, how hard is that? Like, I was, there were, I was like f- two sizes too big. It was like, so even that was wrong colors, wrong size. There's only two things involved in fashion, size and color. And I got them both wrong. So I came and we, I, we came from there. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it upright for JF, which uh, I've heard people call you earlier today so from here on all right me and jf i can totally live with that at the glp hq there's so many places that uh we could potentially go in this conversation one of the things that actually really fascinated me when um we were just starting our conversation not too long ago there was a moment where i was like wait a minute is actually like you're all you do now is write books and speak and you're like well yes yes i do mm-hmm. and there's a it, that is such a massive aspiration for so many people. And there's so much stuff in the market now, which basically says, don't even try. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I don't read that stuff. That'd be I, discouraging. It would be, right? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about sort of like the path for you. Because th- this is relatively new, I mean, for you in, in the scheme of, you know, you're a grown up who's had a substantial work history. It's very new as far as doing it, but it's even newer as far as believing it. Um, All right, deconstruct that for me. Well, my wife has a couple times said, hey, are you ready? Like, you've written five books. Are you ready to say the phrase, I'm a writer, out loud now? And I'm like, ah, maybe book 10. It doesn't count yet. So it feels really new there. But I worked in corporate America for 15 years um, in advertising and marketing. And so I was always fascinated by the ability for an idea to inspire somebody to change their life or to do something with it. So like the power of words, the power of ideas. And then I started to blog and there's all these new avenues that opened up because of the internet. And so I started a blog and got some momentum and was able to get a publishing deal after that. But my first publishing deal was $30,000. And so after agent fees and taxes, I I got $13,000. And when I told people I got a publishing deal, they'd be like, you're going to quit your job? You're going to Mexico? And if you (laughs) won a $13,000 lottery, (laughs) you wouldn't, nobody would say that. And so it was bit by bit by bit by bit until I felt like 
I had enough foundation and I had an opportunity to work with this guy, Dave Ramsey, who had a huge platform. And I was thinking about this like two weeks ago, I spoke to 10,000 people twice in the same week. And I was nervous about it, but I knew I could do it because with him, I had done 20 10,000 person events, you know, three, you know, every year I did 20 to 25 of those. Mm. So I got reps and I got practice. And so those three years really fast forwarded me. And then I felt like it's time to try it on my own. So we've only been doing it for like two years. And I, there's still a large part of me that doesn't believe it. Like I met with Penguin yesterday, my publisher, and there's still a part of me that's like, why are you letting me in the building? And so I think a lot of people have the same kind of negative kind of self-talk. But what, I mean, where is that coming from, from you? Like, what's the, when you say, why are you letting me in the building? Mm -hmm. What's the source of that questioning for you? I don't, I don't know. I have a hard time. I'm working on a new book and I might explore this idea. I have a hard time accepting success. Like as the closer I get to it, the more I want to kind of like drill holes in my own boat Mm -hmm. and, and not get out of my own way. And right. so I think sometimes when things go well, like the book hit the New York Times list, like the like the second one in a row did that. That's awesome. But it's still, I'm still learning to wear that as a coat. Like success feels like my dad's coat at the eighth grade dance sometimes. And so then I have to do the work of being self-aware and going, okay, what's the secret rule I learned at some part in my life that I've practiced secretly and quietly that's still reacting when I experience that. Nah. I don't know that I can trace it yet, but I, I do feel better about going, you know, it's, it's a thing I'm working on, you know, and, and where did that come from? What's the origin? I had a friend tell me he got some new luggage because he got a new job, like an important job and he got some cool luggage and it was really heavy and it like, it was cool looking, but it wasn't functional. And he thought that's what you have to do. And he was at the airport and he saw this businesswoman walk by, um, dragging a, or like wheeling her suitcase and it had wheels and it just hit him. Like, why am I, why do I think wheels don't count? Like, why am I so hard on myself that it has to be painful for it to have value? And then he got a wheeled suitcase. Like, this is amazing. Like you don't have to. And so I'd say part of my life right now is going, where are there parts where it's okay to have wheels and it's okay to do things you enjoy and they don't have to be this miserable thing. And so. That's a long rambling answer, but, but, you know, I think it's such, it's an experience that is so pervasive, whether you want to be an author, like, and it comes up, I think, almost always in the context of doing something that actually is deeply meaningful and joyful to you. And at the same time starts to present, like you start to see the light of possibility of like, this could actually be my thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's like something inside of you. It's like, like gay Hendricks, like upper limit problems for so many people like I, I don't I just read that and that was fascinating super, book it was right wildly challenging to me yeah. I felt like he was right like reading my diary yeah and I thought it was and I hadn't heard of the book before and I was like why aren't more people talking about this yeah it's because it's so interesting because it's sort of like you get to a point where you're you're not comfortable for some reason you know and but and, you work so hard to get to that point so it's right. this terrible cycle it's right. like I, you know, words of affirmation are something that are one of the ways I, exp- I, I receive love. And, but as soon as people give them to me, I shot block them and find a different way to not accept the compliment. And so like I've how? learned. So if somebody goes um, after an event, like, hey, that was amazing. That speech you gave was really good. I go, oh, thanks. That team was great. Like they did a good job putting on that event. Or mm. thanks. The audience was so kind, which is me deflecting. And if you think about it, it's really insulting to the person because they've said, I believe this thing to be true. You did a good job. And you go, Actually, you're wrong. 
Like it was other forces you don't understand. And so just to go, hey, thanks. Like I really had a lot of joy doing that. And I, and I worked really hard on it. Thanks, thanks for saying that. Even just receiving a compliment. I mean, you talk about like word yoga. Like that's word yoga. Like the flexibility to allow somebody to say you did a good job on something and for you to allow it to land. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've actually been accused of the exact same thing by like my team. <laughs> like, dude, you receive a compliment so badly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I th- and it's it's a weird thing because we worked hard for them. It doesn't, you can receive it and not make it your idol. Like, it's not like you, you know, I don't right. think you should ever just do something for applause because then when the applause stops, so will you. Like, and it, it's going to, you go through phases yeah. where there's a lot of it and there's a little of it and there's none of it. And, and so... I don't know. It's a weird thing. That's what was part of the fun thing for me talking to you about some of these ideas is, okay, there's other people exploring this stuff too. Yeah. And for 15 years, I didn't know that. And then I kind of jumped into this space and I met two really interesting people right before we did this podcast. Like, I didn't know they existed, you know? And so that's yeah. what's fun to me about this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's interesting to, like, when I think about these questions also, because I spent some time really sort of, you know, like diving into Eastern philosophy and it's very different lens, you know, whereas it's nothing is about you. Mm-hmm. So there's this really interesting dance where, you know, like we're all part of one. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's like everything is about service and generosity. Mm-hmm. Y- so on the one hand, you feel like, well, I shouldn't be taking credit for anything. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like you said, I, I never actually thought about the fact that, wow, like I could, I'm kind of insulting this person mm-hmm. by not doing that. But I don't, so I don't think that's why I deflect the way mm-hmm. that I deflect and I deflect fiercely. I think it's a real discomfort just with anybody giving me credit for being good. Mm-hmm. And I, so it's something I think about a lot also now because I realize that there's a time where you're just like, hey, thanks. Yeah. It means a lot. Well, and that's what I've learned to say is thanks. I had fun, but I, I catch myself going into it. And part of it's dishonest too because there's times when I know I did a good job. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to lie to that person. Like I'm learning a lot about the honesty of my words and like the honesty of like the closer I try to get to who I am, the more honest it forces me to be and not to, you know, manipulate, especially with a marketing background. Like I know the three levers to pull and there's so much of that on the internet right now where I'll have friends go, Oh, this so-and-so launched something and they made $500,000 on this course. And I'll go, was it, is it a good course? Does it help people? I don't know. Would that, that should be something right. we think about because otherwise yeah. you're just shaking somebody as an ATM machine. And it's not that you, like my wife really challenged me on this. She said, ask, how can I help um, someone? Not what can I sell someone first? Because if you ask, how can I help? You can come up with a million ways to sell them something. But yeah. a lot of times when you ask the sell question first, you never loop back around to the help question. And so learning to be honest about some of this stuff and go, okay, I'm going to, if somebody asked me to do something, and I don't have time, I'm just going to say no, not, I'm not going to push it off or, or give them some, like, I'm so honored that you asked. No, like, that's, those are just words and they're empty. And so practicing honesty, I think, is a really fascinating thing too. Yeah, it is. And then there's like, what, you know, how honest do you get? Because <laughs> there's radical honesty, mm-hmm. which I don't know if I'm actually a fan of. No, I'm a, I'm a fan of relational honesty in that. Well, break that um, down for me. What? So... You know, I talked about Eastern philosophy. Um, I'm a Christian and part of our, you know, love your neighbor, 
part of that idea is the community of people you're actively involved with. Like, and how are you really loving your neighbor? And so there are people that are my neighbor that ha- that receive a level of honesty that's different than people that are on Twitter. And I, I don't, like radical honesty might say, everyone deserves the same level of honesty or every email or every whatever. But I feel like your level of intimacy and relationships should grow as your level of honesty and vice versa. So if somebody says, you know, hey, I need you to do this and we don't have a relationship, it's okay for me to go, hey, no, I can't do that. Like if somebody, if that's somebody who's my brother or somebody who I'm close to, I might need to say, hey, here's why I can't do that and here's the date I could do that, you know. And so I think there's, that's part of the dance for me is that not everybody deserves that. And the other thing is if you're married, it's not your story, it's our story. Mm. So when I was first married, I would kind of threaten my wife and be like, I'm going to share this story about us. And she'd go, well, that's our story, and I, I've got a voice in that, and I'm not just because the internet gives you that chance to do that. And then I think you can even get into using authenticity as a tool where you confess something publicly because you know it, where it'll take the audience emotionally. And so for me as a speaker, as a writer, I have a post that I know I'm not going to share because I was trying to be honest, and then it dipped into manipulation. So it was this whole post about, and I, I spoke about this at WDS, the concept that if you see people as just your platform, you eventually stand on top of them. And I believe that to be a true idea. But then I went and it got corrupted by ego and was kind of, and I said like, so I won't do that to you. Like, I'm not going to sell you stuff. And now I'm, in addition to criticizing other people, I'm now saying like, I'm the bastion of like, oh, I'm only going to give you things that are amazing. And, and I was doing that because I wanted people to think about me a certain way. Mm. So now I've left the lesson, which does serve the person. And now it's just about serving me. And so unless I can find a way to take that other part out, it doesn't help the audience. And you've seen speeches like that where you can see, because you've done this so many times, that thing really served the audience. This other part served the speaker. And it's okay for some of that, but sometimes it gets so muddy that I don't know. I think it's definitely a fine line. I don't have sort of like the traditional marketing background, but I've spent a lot of years studying language of influence um, and studying with copywriters and learning to be a copywriter. So I know all those same triggers that, you know, like I know how to create an influence experience that will move somebody from point A to saying, I want it. I want this. Like, I want what you have. But I so agree with you. I think like the fundamental question, you know, like, is it, is it genuinely in service of a need? Mm-hmm. You know, because just because you can sell something doesn't mean that you should. And as a leader, as a human, you have a responsibility to say, just because something somebody would buy something from me doesn't mean I should. And not in a self-righteous as in, I know what they need yeah, and they don't, but just in a, this is a group of people I'm trying to shepherd. So you're doing your camp. Like you could do a lot of stuff at your camp that would do the A to B, move somebody there. No. You could have a big emotional thing at the end of the camp where it's this big, like, and here's all this stuff you can buy because everybody's emotions are high or whatever. But you know, like, what's the point? Like yeah. one, you burn all those relationships. Two, they don't get to really know you. I kind of think about it like blogging. Like I remember um, something that bloggers suffer with is that they'll write a hundred posts and one of the posts gets the most traffic. And so then they go, okay, well, I need to write about that topic more. And then they start to write about that topic more and more and more and more. And, more. and six months later, they're now a dating expert. Right. Because, and then they look at it and go, I'm unhappy with my blog. And you say, well, why'd you do that? And they say, well, this topic gets more traffic. Well, what does that mean? More traffic means more ad revenue and more avenue, re- more revenue means more money. And then essentially somebody's come up to you and said, if I give you money, will you not write about what you care about? If somebody said that to you in the street, you'd go, 
what kind of monster walks around to people who love to blog and says, can I pay you not to express your heart? But there's this, there's this fine line and it's tricky and it's layered. And so I don't know. I like, I like getting in kind of the, the, the mess of that with people and talking about it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. We're, we're so, I mean, I, I think we both probably talked to a lot of creators and entrepreneurs and to me, it's always, you start from a place of like solve, don't sell. You know, and, and first and foremost, like, and it's funny because this is a conversation that I've, that I've had with a lot of people. I'm curious whether you've had something similar, which is if you can first figure out who do I want to serve as like the foundation of building something, whether it's your career, your job, a business, a body of work, whatever it may be. Like, if you can start with that person, like, can you actually picture the person? that you want to serve and then, you know, like get into their head and find out, you know, this is all the classic marketing stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's funny. Like when I build a business, I actually don't write business plans. I write copy mm-hmm. because to me, it's like, it puts me into having to just deeply understand who the person is that I want to serve, what their pains are, what their life is like, what their needs mm-hmm. and desires, hopes, aspirations are. And then it forces me to ask a question, can I serve them in a legitimate way? you know, and then have the conversation in a compelling way, which, which sort of like allows them, you know, allows me the gift to be able to actually Mm -hmm. do that. And then if I'm convinced of that, I'm like, okay, what would the business built around this look like? But that's not normally very often sort of like the way it happens. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, I think now we're talking short-term versus long-term. Like in part, yeah. Like there's a, some of the stuff you just described, like in our hope to find a shortcut to whatever passive income or whatever, it's kind of the thing of the moment. Sometimes the process you just described should take time and should be built on questions. And so I think about what's interesting too, is other audiences, if you create a good work, other audiences will find the good work that you Mm. didn't even know existed. Uh, Totally. So right now, like my last book was called do over and it was about change and transition. And the person that bought the most was somebody in the military and he bought 100 copies, and he said, leaving the military is a huge do-over. Going back to civilian life is a gigantic do-over. Yeah. I've been giving it to members. I'd be lying if I said when I thought about the audience, I considered military. Right. So now I'm kind of in the, how you described it. I'm looking at it and going, if I did a webinar for people who had left the military, the first thing I'd have to do is talk to people who had done that and ask them, what are the things that are hard? What are the things you need? Because I can brainstorm them all day, but it won't really serve them right. unless I really know these are the five things. And then once I know the five things, then I can add my insight, hopefully some some ideas on top of that. And now I can serve this audience that appeared once the work was created. So I think it's that balance of, of both. But I get, if I'm not careful and I overthink the audience, I won't create something because I'm thinking before it's even left my head and hit the paper, I'm right. editing it going, they wouldn't like that. And that's, that's the flip side of it, right? So you've got like the empathy-based approach to creation mm-hmm. And then you've got the maker-based approach to creation, which is like, there's a thing in my head, there's a monster in my head that must get out. Yeah, yeah. Right? And if I don't, I'm going to be wildly unhappy. Right. The only thing worse yeah. than the, and this was like a Robert McKee, like, you know, I remember him saying this. He's like, you know, the, you've got a monster about writers. You know, he's yeah. like, you've got a monster in your head. And the only thing worse than the process of getting it out is not trying to yeah. get it out. Oh, that's good. You know? It makes me feel better because writing is hard. It's so hard, right? And like, there's, and it, like, there's an aesthetic, there's a voice, there's a quality that like you have to be true to, but you know, and then there's the empathy side, you know, like it, will it be in service of, and if so, whom, and then how does that dance 
where you feel good about mm-hmm. being being okay with both of those things. That's not an easy dance. Yeah, and the first one is the one I start with because I think some of the things I might have said already sound like, oh, it's all service. That's not true. Like what's true for me is the, my favorite part of the process is the getting it out. Hmm. Like because I that's the part. And then I'm so thrilled when it goes into the service mode and that that happens. But like for me, the favorite part is still like I've heard myself on radio shows before go like the best part of my job is knowing I change people's lives. And that's me giving a radio answer where like my favorite part of my job is the writing of it and the, you know, the crafting of it. And I'm so excited that I then get to do that other part. But I think that's some of the tension and it's the fun part. But man, I, I don't know. Maybe there's writers out there that are like, I woke up and wrote eight hours of prose today and it was amazing. Like, I would rather do almost anything than write. Like I have to force myself. But once I'm in the mode and once I'm yeah. like binge watching Netflix, I'm way better at than, than <laughs> writing. But I know which one will produce a book at the end. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, I am you know, like 90% maker. Yeah. Um, the process of bringing something, you know, creating something from nothing or from seeds is like, that's where I'm so, it's so funny. I tell me, I'm curious about this. So, when I get, you know, when I write a book, are you grumpy when you do that? Because my wife would say, like, sometimes I'm not very. Livable. I see her like yeah, shaking she's... her head behind. She's like, <laughs> I mean, nodding. She's like, oh yeah, I'm not very livable, as it were. It depends <laughs> on the time of day and depends how close I am to the deadline. But like that final month, probably not all that much fun to be around yeah. me. So um, I feel like in the movies, writers are always making out more than is really happening. <laughs> like they write a bunch and then they make out. I don't. Feel like that's uh, but dynamic. they're also drinking and like they're drunk constantly like the suffering artist spectrum like that was never my mo but for me it's like the thing as hard as it is it's like the process of like cr- the creator process for me when i get a finished book you know it's funny like we probably have both have a ton of friends who are authors and I see all these pictures on Instagram or Twitter or something, like, and they get the actual book in the mail and like the, you know, like hashtag I'm weeping. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I, when I get the book, I really don't care. Like, I just couldn't care less, you know, cause I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, like I'm, I'm done. It was the process that was yeah. cool. I did my yeah. piece. Well, it's a trinket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I hope, I hope, you know, it goes out there in the market and makes a difference. It matters. But the book itself, I'm like, eh. Like the box will come right from the publisher with like a little note and I'll get an email and they'll be like, check your mail today. There's something cool in it. Yeah. And I'll let it sit for like a week. <laughs> like, That's so, yeah, I, same thing. I mean, I was excited to get the box the first, like the time, but no, I'm not the, I don't know. It's the process for me. No. Like, and it's the being done. Like, I don't yeah. love to write. I love to have been done. Nah. And so I know that I get the one after the other, but I've been, I've got to work on a new book right now. And my wife's been kind of pushing me about it because there's always more emails to respond to. Like if you want to be distracted from your life's work, there's oh, yeah. no shortage of opportunities. And so what happened a couple times what's happened is that I've said yes to a lot of speaking gigs and I'll, and Jenny will say, you're, you're taking a lot of Advil these days. I'm like, well, my neck hurts. I've got a lot of stress. I got a lot to do. And she'll say, then you, you must have a terrible boss. And by the way, it's, it's you. And, or like, I think it's fun to, and I think I said this at WDS, fill our calendars so full that we don't have to face the honesty of the reason I'm not doing this life's work or building something is because I'm afraid to. Mm. And if I didn't have this long to-do list, I'd have to sit down in the quietness. I mean, that's why phones are such a blessing and a curse in that you can 
never be alone with your thoughts if you want to. Like at least it used to be like in the shower, you, you, you know, thoughts could catch up. But even, even now you're like, oh, I'll play music or I'll think about something else. Right. And I'll stream something from I'll my stream phone. something, yeah. Like I'll figure out a Netflix, you know, I'll watch House of Cards somehow with a yeah. mirror that shoots it up. Like, I don't know. But yeah, I'm the same way. It's funny you say that. Because I do think the perception is, at least on Instagram, like, I got this and you know what? I, I held a party and I read it to my friends just out loud. Like we had a, <laughs> by a fire pit and it was, we had, uh, we had mead. We didn't even have wine. We had mead. <laughs> like somebody made their own mead and you know, and I read it. The only time I read my book is when I do the audio book and you know, and that's, so I don't know, maybe there's different writers out there. That... I think there, I, and I think it's, I mean, I have kind of a theory that, that there's a spectrum, you know, it's like of, of what lights people up that moves from pure service to pure maker. Mm-hmm. And everybody's somewhere along that spectrum. Mm-hmm. I am definitely much more, you know, on the side of much closer to pure maker than pure service. I love the fact that what I create matters when it when it does yeah. matter. It doesn't always. Yeah. Um, and but your job was to create it, right? Exactly. And it's kind of like there's this amazing line in um, Liz Gilbert's new book, Big Big Magic, um, which is phenomenal on the creative process. And she's like, you know. If your primary motivation to like write something is because you want to help somebody, please don't. <laughs> That's great. You know, she's like, it can be part of it, but like write it because it's the thing you have to write yeah. first and foremost. And what's interesting, I don't necessarily think that that's true for everybody. No, I don't I, think it's... I think for my orientation, because I am primarily maker driven, that's right for me. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who like wakes up in the morning and is like sort of like born and lives and breathes to be in service of... Mm-hmm. you like the thing that they really want to do is they'll create something not so much because it's the thing they have to create but because it it allows them to serve on a higher better level yeah i don't like i don't have that My, yeah. i mean i feel like if we this, both sound like cold hard yeah <laughs> like the spectrum for me is like service or jerk and i try to fight my way to service like to claw so i don't know i just my favorite thing is to make people laugh and to make people think and so books are a great way to do that and podcasts are a fun way to do that and speeches are a fun way to do that but it's the process of like creating that idea i know like i one of my favorite ideas that i've been playing around with is the netflix binging thing and i'm relating it to like 20 years ago you wouldn't have gone into blockbuster and rented nine movies and not felt like a loser like (laughs) even the cashier would have been like is everything all right man because we like there's like trees outside and stuff now culturally we're okay with that if you said like on monday if you told me at work what, and I said, what'd you do this week? And you said, oh, I binge watched eight hours of TV. I'd go, well, have you watched House of Cards yet or Bloodline? Like I'd give you other recommendations right. to, and so like that, exploring that idea and the humor that I could try to find in it, that's really funny to me. It's the, the service part comes later. But I think as an author, you feel this pressure to be like, you know, at the end of the day, I sit down with a blank piece of paper and I look out across my yard and I see humans and I go, I'm going to save you. <laughs> this is for you. And then I, then I write. I think you do. I think also... You know, as somebody who's trying to make a living doing it, the expectation is, you know, like you're doing this in service of. And if you don't say that, then people won't sort of rise to support you. And I think it's okay. I don't think any of us do it entirely in a vacuum. You know, like the fact no. that, you know, th- th- of course there's a service element to everyone. Like we want to make a, a difference on some level, but it's just, it's that spectrum where it's like, what's the reason that you're like, what do you wake up in the morning and do the work? Because like, that's the thing that's really making me do the work. And it's like, I love the fact that it lands and helps people. But I think it's different too. Like 
if we're talking spectrums, there's there's creating the work and then almost servicing the community. And so yeah. when I'm when I'm alone in my room or at the library or wherever, I'm trying to create the work. And I know, you know, a lot of a lot of what I'm going to write will be inspired by people who have said, "Hey, this thing you wrote, I liked, but there's these seven other questions that, like, mm. these are the ones that are really hurting me right now." Yeah. And I'll think about that and I'll consider that. I don't like I don't write books of poetry and then go, "Hey, you've hired me to write books that help people. Here's my books of poetry. I hope they." It's just something I felt like passionately writing. So there is service baked through, but I think the service is like the spectrum where it jumps up during the the book exists and you go share it with people. Like when I go like WDS, I tried my best to go. I didn't really even talk about my book much, but I tried my best to go, what does this crowd need? Knowing who they are and knowing where their hearts are. And, you know, I'll talk about voice because I struggle with using my authentic voice and maybe some of them do too. So I don't, I, but I, but that's after the writing process to me. So I think, my thing is that I can get too manipulative during the process if I try to pretend I'm this, you know, high and mighty person that's like just all about service all the time. It kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting because I know you recently wrote about sort of your writing process, and it was kind of fascinating to for me to raise, you know, like the multiple passes about how things land in the page because I had a really similar process. But what you just mentioned, you know, like really just like finding your authentic voice when you read what you've written in book form. It sounds very much like, oh, I'm just having a conversation with John, mm-hmm. you know, but what's interesting is then when you read what you recently wrote about your writing process, it's kind of like, so when you read the book, you just kind of assume that, oh, he, it's almost like maybe he just spoke this into dictation and yeah. had, had somebody <laughs> write it and it just, it just seems like we're hanging out talking, right? And then when you, you, you write, because it sounds so conversational and just like casual. And then when you read, like when you shared your writing process, you're like, oh, Wow. Like, this is so much more, like, to get to a point where it sounds like no work was done on it. Oh, it's so impossible for me. It's- <laughs> and on the same way. So I want to wrap the conversation around service, because I think it's really easy to listen to the conversation and say, well, these guys are just all about creating stuff, and they have to serve other people because that's the way that you make money doing mm. it. And I, I want to be really clear that it's in our bones as well. And I think it's in everybody's bones. But But I think you kind of were getting to the point where... Very often it happens in modes and phases where like when you're creating, like you're creating because it's the thing you have to create. And then when that part of the work is done, you turn around and you say, okay, how do I move this out into the world in a way where I can genuinely, like where it can be of service and I can be of service. And so it's all kind of like you're switching modes at that point. That's the tension for me too. I mean, we early in this conversation talked about just because you can make something and sell it, if it's not going to help people, don't do it. So there's a lot of things that I look at and go, you know, people come up to me all the time and go, you're not monetizing your audience enough. And I feel a lot of shame in that. Like, because I feel like it's always presented like there's a dump truck of money that every other author is just like swimming around in. And then you go, and it's passive. Like I did in 10 minutes and it just comes through my window and like a shoot. And I feel like, man, what am I missing? But at the same time, I know I wouldn't feel good about myself. And like, there's this one person I think of sometimes when I create stuff I had coffee with him and he said, oh, my wife and I have a $20 budget we can spend on discretionary stuff because we're, we're, you know, we're really trying to pay bills. And he said, it's audible. And we listened to your book. That was one of the two books we got that month. So like, there's that tension for me where I do like to win. I am competitive. Like I do like to build stuff, but there's also remembering like, there's a guy, like there's people behind 
the 2000 person audience or there's people behind the thing that you really want to, like you do want to serve. And so that's the tension I feel. I don't feel it when I'm necessarily creating something. I feel it when I'm releasing something. Yeah. And I feel it at the beginning. I wouldn't create it if I felt like it wasn't going to help somebody. Right. Like I wouldn't, people have sometimes said like, you guys should do a book about parenting. Like I have a nine year old and a 12 year old. I should not do a book about parenting. I've never had a teenager. Like, so if I write a book that's like, Hey, Hey, I figured out kids. Here's the answer. <laughs> right. That's really dishonest. And even if I could sell a lot of copies, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel good about it. But you asked me about my kind of my writing process, like the hard work of getting to it sounding conversational. Like, yeah, it's, it's really hard work. And my poor wife had to read like nine drafts of this last mm. book. And there were parts where, and even as I write the new one, she'll go, you didn't push it far enough. Like you didn't, it, it's not, you know, it's not honest yet. You're writing a safe book. And the other thing is that I don't know if other authors struggle with this. I sometimes try to write somebody else's book, and mm. I'm a terrible... I write a terrible Jim Collins book. Like I write a terrible Simon Sinek book. I write a terrible Tim Ferriss book. Like The only books it turns out I can write are John Acuff books. But that out of fear or insecurity, whatever, the first couple drafts are like... So anyway, as I was saying in my research that I don't know how to do because I'm not a Stanford professor like Jim Collins and haven't done it for 20 years, here's the thing. Or like, I'm going to do a Malcolm Gladwell twist on this paragraph. And it turns out, you know, and so then I have to write that and then I'll read it to my wife and I can see. And even as I'm reading it out loud, I'm getting bored and I'll just stop. <laughs> I got to, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Like, it's not, it's not there. Like, if I'm getting bored in the reading of yeah. it, then everyone's going to go. Yeah, it's really tough. So you have you have like three passes mm-hmm. that you at make least through. like. So what are like the the major three ones? And maybe, so, um, even though there may be five under each, yeah. One so the one of them is honest. Like, was it honest? Was I saying something to try to make myself look good, but I didn't really do? Like one time, I, I wrote this idea about how like every Friday I try to have lunch with somebody who asks me to lunch, and it's a stranger I try to serve. I did that like twice. And then I was like, that'd be a good thing to do. And I bet I'll do it just because I wrote it down. And then like, I wasn't doing that. That wasn't, that was an example of like, that's not honest. Or am I telling you to do something that I wouldn't do myself? I'm like, well, some people should do this. So I try to make it honest. I try to make it um, hopeful. Sometimes I get really jaded and really kind of like, I always call it like the counting crows draft because it's like round here because I love the counting crows, but it's not like you don't jog to the counting crows. Like nobody's like, oh, I'm going to throw some counting crows, like perfect blue buildings and go run. And so I'll read it and be like, this is really depressing or like, it's really mopey. My wife, uh, I, I know I say like the phrase my wife a lot, but she's just like the smartest person. Um, we were talking about me doing a podcast and she was like, you better get a producer because otherwise it'll just be you like a, like a tween girl crying in the mirror to watch herself emote. (laughs) And I was like, that is very, very true. And so I try to make it hopeful because at the end of the day, I am hopeful. Mm. Tension for me is I believe people are capable of more than they think. And I believe it's going to take more work than they think. If I can get you to buy into that first part, then we can talk about the second part. Where it breaks down is when books or blogs sell you on that first part and they don't talk at all about the second part. Mm-hmm. And you read it and you feel like a failure because your life didn't change because it sold you on the unicorns and the, the fluffiness. Or there's books that say it's hard work, but they're so boring and so dry that you have no hope to fuel your way through them. So then the third one is I try to make it hilarious and humorous. I love humor. For every business speech I watch, I watch 100 comedians. And study, okay, why did Gary Goleman say it that way? Why did, um, you know, why did, like, Brian Regan struggle? Like, what was it about this word that worked better than the other one? And how did they communicate it? Because the best comedians, to me, are social commentators. 
and they're saying things that are really fascinating. But the problem is like a lot of your listeners, I don't value the thing I'm good at. Like we have this, I always say the heart, the talent you have the hardest time recognizing is your own. Um, and I think it was Derek um, Sievers, is that how you say yeah, his name? Sievers, yeah, Sivers? Yeah, I think, Sivers? So. I think so, okay. but I'm not sure. I don't, he's in New Zealand. He's amazing, but he said, like, it's extra, it's ordinary to you, but extraordinary to everybody else. Mm. And so because humor is so ordinary to me, I, some, I write these really boring drafts where I've sucked it all out. And people read it and be like, it's, it's fine, but, like, it's not funny, and you're funny. And so if I'm at a dinner table, at dinner, I'm telling jokes, and I'm riffing. I'm not doing, like, hey, I got four things that'll change your life. Let me tell you those over dinner. No, I'm riffing about things. So I try to put that in. And then the collu- like the collision of all three of those things is what makes it sound conversational. And the honest thing, too, is in our space, the space we're in, there's a lot of people that only talk about the times they've won or a failure from a long time ago that no longer hurts. And an audience, whether they're reading the book or sitting in a crowd, gets separated from you when you do that, I, I believe. So like when you go on stage, there's this gap that opens up between like, oh, they don't get me. They're on stage. It's different. Where if you'll be honest, you close that gap and you go like, hey, I'm in the trenches. Like I'm not, I haven't figured this out yet. And here's, but here's what I'm learning. And it's messy. And I, I did this thing incorrectly. Like I wrote about my blog email list the other day because I had a funeral for it. Like I lit it on fire in our driveway because I was just so obsessed with it. Like everybody was like, you got to build your list. And if like, if the world ends tomorrow without an email list, it's all over. Like it's all email and I was terrible at it. And so I had to stop it and then I started it again and I messed it up again. I was sending 7,000 people double emails every day and that's a bad customer experience. And then I'm writing books about leadership and so, but that's what people will go, oh, you're like me. Like, okay, like I thought I was the only one that sucked at email. Hmm. Like it's good to know I'm not. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I, th- I think the tension a lot of people have in that is if part of what they're doing is trying to position themselves as an expert, they become fearful that they'll lose the the I know more than you positioning that allows, that creates the ability for them to charge money for yeah. their expertise. And that's what what's behind a lot of that. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think that if you'll drop some of that, not no. all of it. Like, I think it's dishonest if you know how to do something well for you to pretend you don't just to try to be authentic or right. relatable. Like, it's not, I've, I've spoken 300 times probably in the last five years and I've gotten a lot better at it. I'm not 30 years in, but I, I know more than I did now. I know more now than I did then. So if somebody said, what are the 10 tips you'd give me about public speaking? I would feel okay saying like, here's what you should do or here's where you, you know, you structured this part wrong in your speech. So that's, it's, it's as dishonest for me to pretend I can't tell you that mm-hmm. as it is for me to fake that I'm only, that I know everything. And you don't. Like you, the older I get, the more I don't. Trust me, the older I get, the real, I, I'm like, wow, I am a moron. Yeah, yeah. Like how, why is that? Like I was telling, I, I was telling a friend, I'm so afraid to go new places to restaurants because I don't know what the parking's going to be like. Like, where will I park? And so like, but then people online are like, you're such an adventurer. And I am in certain aspects. But at the same time, if somebody goes, hey, you want to go downtown to the restaurant? I'm like, what we, is it a valet? Do they have their own lot? Like, am I parallel? I'm not good at parallel parking. Which is the smallest car we own? I don't know if we should go. Can we go to that place near my and house? How are you with dress codes at different restaurants? <laughs> well, that New York frightens me because Nashville is jeans. Everybody wears jeans. Yeah. So like, I have a sport coat. Um, which is why I'm so hot today. Anyway, yeah, I get nervous about that. So I think it's a mix of those two. And if it's honest of you as well, like that's what I really like is that 
there are some leader, like if somebody said to me, should every speech be funny? Should every public speaker be funny? I'd say, no, they should if it's honest of who they are. Hmm. They should be relatable. They should be honest. But if you're not a funny person, it's really weird for you to spend 99% of your week not funny. And then you get on stage for one hour and you're like, time to be funny because you end up telling this really inauthentic joke that right. doesn't land with the audience and pushes them further away. Yeah. It also seems like you have a, I mean, so you share like for every one business talk, you know, you watch 99 other mm-hmm. um, stand-ups or comics. How much have you put into cultivating the craft of speaking? A lot. A lot more than I thought. I, I probably have done, you know, I'll do 60 or 70 gigs a year and from like 40 people like today to 10,000 people like two weeks ago. And I love the dynamic of an audience. I love to figure out how an idea lands. I, the more time I spend online, the more time I realize offline still matters. Mm. Like, you know this, like, but part of why you do the camp is there's a magic that can't yeah. have, like, the internet promise of 10 years ago of it'll replace all need for interaction. Never. Like, no. Never going to happen. <laughs> and so there's a magic to a live audience. Yeah. And I love the challenge. And I, I'm, I'm starting to realize I'm a performer. Like I, and mm. I'm okay saying that, like I'm a performer and I like the tension. Like I did a 10,000 person event and they had the wrong slides and I found out on stage. Now, the one thing is I should have double checked. I checked, but not well enough before. So that's my mistake. And I learned from that. But I, in the moment I was like, all right, well, let's figure this out, you know, and let's, how does this go? And so, yeah, I really do like it. And I'm starting to admit that because I felt, I used to feel like I have friends that would say like, oh, you have to be gone all the time that's terrible and and i'm learning to balance that and admit like no i like it like that's a fun part of my job like i'm honored that i get to go do that and and i love to show up somewhere where they're not expecting it to be good like i was at a big company and a 24 year old said after like i came for the free sandwich but this is this is really good Mm. like i love that a hundred people came because they had to or they thought like, oh, I'll get a sandwich out of it and who doesn't like sandwiches and then i get to kind of win that over i i enjoy that and the craft of that yeah. So uh, what what's the main thing that, I mean, when you think about building the craft for you, is it just doing it a million times or is there, do you take a sort of a deliberate approach to cultivating the craft or is it just kind of doing um, it and exploring and playing? doing it, exploring it? Um, I, I had somebody tell me once they got feedback. I'd spoken, it was 3,500 people and they like 10 people said it sounded faked and rehearsed. And what they were responding to is that I had practiced that speech 10 times. So when I got up, it was just, I was yeah. going, because what I was afraid of is I was afraid of silence. I was afraid of not knowing the next thing. And they really said to me, the best moments happen new for both you and the audience. So you have to leave space in there yeah. for new stuff to come up. And that's, I think that takes time to get comfortable with that. But now it's my, it's my favorite part to kind of react to the stuff and, then the audience knows you're not just getting one message every time. So I'm deliberate in the sense of I know kind of my key messages that I'm going to share and I know where I've laid on other ideas. But like today at Comedy Central, I did some new material about flying first class. Like the the joke was about the difference between snacks and first class and business class because in first class they have this wicker basket that that just overflows and they're constantly like it's a cornucopia they're dumping it they're like take more like in business class if you ask for peanuts and pretzels they're kind of like you jerk like (laughs) both really and then you have somebody who's like leave the can i want the ginger ale can leave it and you spent 500 dollars on a ticket but in that moment you're like i need that can just leave that can (laughs) like the absurdity of that and so i practiced it 
with them and it, I felt like it went well. So that's kind of how I look at the craft, but I've never, I did Toastmasters for like three or four weeks and I've heard good things about the program, but I've, other than practicing it live and going, okay, this thing didn't land. How do I connect with people or who's in the audience that I need to understand and their language? And, nah. and so, but little things like as a speaker, if you call the client two weeks before and interview the client, it's such a better speech because then you really know the problems. Yeah. And that's the service yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. And you'd be shocked how many speakers don't do that, that yeah. their first interaction is when they show up. And they've never known that what we're really afraid of is that we just went through a round of layoffs and people are really kind of gun shy right now. So when you talk about change, be careful about how you talk about it because we're, we're a little bruised right now. Like that's fun to me to yeah. understand that and then serve that. Yeah. I'm, I'm always amazed because I do the same thing. I'm always amazed when somebody who would hire you to speak actually has no interest in doing that. Where like, mm. you have to hunt to get them on the mm. phone to help you get the raw material to really serve them at like a, a much more relevant level. Well, I want the person that booked me to feel like it was great for them. Yeah, like, exactly. I want, I want them to feel like that was a great decision because they've oh. taken a risk. Like your performance reflects on them. Right. And you're there for an hour. They're with the company the rest of the year. So you want, you want them to have had a good time too. But yeah, I, I love it. Like live events, live, I don't love putting them on because they're so, they overwhelm me with details. But showing up and being able to do them. WDS was one of the, my favorite things I've done this year. Like, yeah, it was, I felt great about it. It was eight 30 in the morning. So I was like, all right, it's the open air. Like that's, <laughs> you know, it's like, I like challenges like that where it's like you against cocktail hour and everybody out there, especially like if it's free cocktail hour, you know, nobody in the, the crowd is like, Oh, please go long. Right, nobody's like, there for you. <laughs> yeah. And so then you go like, how do I, how do I win this audience back? And that's kind of, or how do you tell a, a tense story, but then have some laughter in there to release the tension in the room. You call yourself a writer. Now you just said you're a performer. If you introduce yourself now, you say like, what, like if, if you walked into a room like right now or like a, a, you know, a dinner party where you're kind of the new guy in the room and sat down and so it's like, dude, what do you do? Yeah. I, uh, it's so funny you ask this cause this is an ongoing debate, like fresh, like right now, because I'm realizing when I say I'm a writer, they say one of three things in response. They say, me too. I have a book inside me. I have a crazy life story. You got to hear it. Or they say, have you written anything I would have heard of? Which is a weird thing to say. No one says to accountants, like, I'm an accountant, really? What's your biggest client you've ever worked on? Most successful thing you've ever done. You feel this pressure because you know they are not going to have heard of your work. And somebody told me that my response should be, well, it depends how well read you are. And, <laughs> and that's a great, like, because it puts it back on them. Oh, I got to um, start using that. <laughs> and so then the third, the third thing they, they say is, well, have you ever been published? Because... A lot of people are writers. So I, I don't know. I think I'm learning to say I'm a writer, but I'm also learning to admit like that what I care about is making people laugh and think and that speaking isn't a, isn't like a silver medal, that they, it all feels like molded together to me, that I love ideas and I love humor. And they express themselves sometimes on a stage and sometimes in a book. Mm. But I have a, fortunately in Nashville, probably like New York, you can be a weird career person. Like there's some cities where if you said, this is the thing I do, they go, what does that even, like, what does that mean? Nah. But I, I have a, I'm wrestling with that right now. Like, I think there's a part of me that wants one thing that I do for the next 40 years, but that's not how life works. And it's not how my heart works. I would hate that. Mm. Um, I would hate if I knew like, okay, I'm a factory version of a writer and it's just going to be this, you know, 
here's the thing. Now, I don't want to jump around on shelves a bunch because I do believe in the power of like working the same kind of shelf, if you will, or working this, like building but some I, momentum. I think I understand what you mean by that, but go deeper in case yeah. somebody doesn't. So if you wrote a business book and then a career book and then a poetry book and then a relationship book, you never establish like multi-book conversations where people can go, when I think of you, this is what I think of. And right. I, you know... I trust you for this type of information. And so for me, I love the business space. The last three books have been in the business space. That's where I feel good about staying. Um, I think you can get to a level as a communicator where you're so successful, you can do what you want. Like you could go, like you're so big, you could go, this is going to be my coffee table book or this is going to be my, but I think that takes, you know, decades of kind of dedication. So the tension for me, that's a, that's a fun word is, the tension of being faithful to the space, but also being flexible enough that your creativity stays where it's supposed to be. And mm. if you want to explore something that's more emotional than the last thing you did, then you figure out a way to take the reader who read you along. Like it's every musician faces this, like yeah. where people go, oh, that, this album sounds too much like the last one. Or the other side is they go, I hate this one. I love right. their acoustic stuff. And now, and you look at people, the rare people that can do that, Madonna in the 80s, 90s, like she was able to do that, but it's really hard to figure out how do you walk that. It is, but let me offer it. Cause I've been thinking about this a lot also, just in mm. terms of like the way I like to write and sort of like the other side of that in my mind is sort of like the prototypical example is Gladwell, mm. you know, where he, he's not the, the blink guy. He's not the tipping point guy. He's the guy who latches onto a topic that just fascinates him and then tells the story of that idea in a way where like you just know when you're reading a Gladwell book. So he's got like, he's known for a process and a voice yeah. and people follow him, not because he's like, so he is the X guy, but it's not because it's the topic of the book. He's not the it's trend guy. It's his approach. Like he might've written about trends yeah. and tipping point, but you're not going, I can't wait to see the latest trends that Malcolm Gladwell. Right. So yeah. he's known as like, he's known for a particular process and like lens and voice. Mm -hmm. And like, there's parts of me that sometimes wish I had a singular passion. Like I my, think it's easier. Yeah. Like <laughs> if I was into knitting and I was like, I am so right. knitting, like I knit all day and like forever I'm going to knit. But I know that would get boring to me like two months in, three yeah, months I'm, in. I'm the same. And it's interesting for me also, because I'm working on the third book right now. The first two were business books mm. and the third one is not. And what I'm realizing, even about entrepreneurship, you know, it's like if you looked on my LinkedIn, there's like 300 and something endorsements for entrepreneurship. And that's kind of like one of the things I'm known for. And I love entrepreneurship. I've been an entrepreneur a number of times over. I've helped entrepreneurs. What I'm coming to learn is that the truth of it is I'm less interested in the things that get created in the actual business outcomes created by entrepreneurship. I'm more interested in how entrepreneurship serves as a canvas for the growth of the entrepreneur, huh. which yeah. is like a brand spanking new yeah. realization for me. And it's like, it's explaining so many things for me yeah. and it explains, you know, the programs that we run and why people emerge from them, just like profoundly different people, no matter what happens with, the, with their business. Cause we, I just, my approach is so different and I didn't key in on that until really recently. So it's interesting for me because I'm like, uh, for a long time, oh, I'm like the entrepreneur guy. Like I need to write books about business and entrepreneurship. And what I'm realizing is increasingly nothing I've written has really been about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. It's about the human condition. 
See, I'm, that's how I feel about my last two books are about career, but yeah. if you read them, like yeah. it's about character. Totally. And it's right. about the process totally and right. it's and that's what fascinates me. And there's people that are great at that other thing that need to go be in that space. And so like have like that's the that's them living authentically out of who they are. Yeah. And so what happens sometimes is in Nashville I'll have conversations with people that are entrepreneurs, like hardcore, like I want to build a business, and if the widget was yellow instead of a book, I'd do a yellow widget because I'm building a business, and my goal is to have $10 million in sales right. and 50 people. And then I'll come back and tell my wife, that's what I, want, I need to do. Like, they told me I need to do that, too. And she'll go, stop going to lunch with these people. Like, you, that's you not and I are, like, are. frightening. Like, and I have a feeling our wives are frightening. <laughs> similar also. Well, like, for me, it's kind of the self-awareness is a great thing, but where it gets mutated is if it becomes – like wanting approval too much and wanting to win the room yeah, and knowing totally. how to read the room. And so like the challenge to you is in learning that it's, it's like, I think I've said this before, like it's like you're standing in front of a white wall and you've been a chameleon and you have to stop long enough to go, okay, I've always had a wall like entrepreneur. That's my wall. I'll, I'll form that look. And then to really be honest and go, that's not, it's, it's a flavor of it, mm. but it's a very different because there would be hardcore entrepreneurs that I guarantee that went to camp that were like, Right, when are we doing the LLC stuff? Like, when's the And you're like, actually, like, that's great. That's a great execution. But the big thing, the thing that'll drive all of that is the questions you ask, like, where did that come from? Like, who told you that was, like, who gave you that truth? And how did it get kind of broken in the last 20 years? Like, that's, that's the stuff that's curious to me. And the yeah. tension of going, like, our culture believes you can be anything you want, and that's not true. I'll never play in the NFL. And that's, that's not failure. And so helping somebody in an honest, hopeful way see beyond themselves, because yeah. most people can't see their real talent, can't see their real joy, but also have like not accept like that if they don't do a certain thing, it's a failure. Like you might love to sing and I hope you do, but the goal is to sing more and to understand how to do that joy more, not to win a Grammy. The Grammy is a consequence. Yeah. And if you're not good at singing, it's not, it's not good for either of us to go... If you don't get a Grammy, the journey has been wasted. Right. Like, uh, yeah, so it's funny that we share that in common. I yeah. think we could probably swap stories forever. Yeah, I'm guessing we could. But in the interest of coming full circle, since we've been jamming for about an hour now, so the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what does it mean? To me, it means spending more time being who I honestly am. Like, if I could... You know, less time faking it, less time being who I think I'm supposed to be or doing what I think I'm supposed to do or doing what everybody else is doing and more time honestly being who I am and being brave enough to be that and for that to be enough, like for that, you know, and not criticizing other people because I feel insecure and I need to cut them down to feel better about myself, not hiding what I really feel, not, you know, not avoiding confrontation and letting anger boil into the surface, like, but really being plugged into here's who I am and, and that's enough. And here's how I express that. And here's how, you know, I plug into a story bigger than my own because, because mine alone is really small. And it's funny when you get things you thought you wanted that would make you a certain way and then you get them, you realize, oh, okay, like it might sound cliche. Like there's a lot of cliches, but it's about the journey, not the destination. Like that's true. Like it might've been ruined on mugs and Instagram photos or whatever of like sunsets, but it's true. Cause if you go, okay, here's the amount of money or here's the New York times title, or here's whatever. And that's why you do your thing. When you get the thing, it's, you realize it's empty. And 
And you have to go back to that joy part and have to go back to that. Here's who I was really created to be. And did I do that today? And which areas didn't I do that in? And which areas did I really do that in? Um, and, you know, and, and did I have enough grace to not be great at it? Like we joked about, you know, good podcast, bad podcast, but you're going to be bad at things you're new at. And that's, that's how it should be. And you can't compare to another pot, you know, you can't compare it to somebody else's. And that I give myself grace to get through the bad seasons because there's going to be some. And you don't get to learn new things unless you give yourself that grace. So those are, to me, the things, that, the good life. And then that you're known by people who really love you and that they have access to tell you the truth. I think that so many times when people are facing a decision, they ask me for feedback. I'll say, well, what's your team saying? Like, what are the people that know you and really love you saying? Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.